All right, I'm recording. You want to read the thing? It's a short thing today. Here we go. <clears throat> I am the first in the East, the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. Those are the words that a reader will find, albeit with nearly everyone misspelled, at the forefront of a book written by a man who defies easy description. He was a financial success, though mostly owing to a complete ignorance of the markets he sought to conquer. He was a successful author, though he could not spell and seemed to regard the very act of reading with disdain. And finally, he attempted to live a life of fame and renown so as to never be forgotten, and these days he is remembered as a lucky madman, if he is remembered at all. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the baffling life of Timothy Dexter. There are those who are born to greatness, those who have greatness thrust upon them, and those who stumble backwards down a flight of stairs to land uninjured in a pile of banana cream pied greatness. <laughs> it is in that last category that our subject today fits. Welcome to Relative Disasters. The show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Relative Disaster University's Professor of Eccentric Americans. And I'm her brother Greg, Relative Disaster Corporation's Vice President of Unusual Luckiness. Greg, who is this guy? <laughs> I have never heard of him. <laughs> And I'm so scared after doing a little bit of research. Yeah, he is a tough guy to like. I basically like to divide Timothy Dexter's life up into two parts. Part one is the let's all cheer for this crazy person getting rich and sticking it to the wealthy. Mm. And then part two is the yikes that took a left Oh turn. boy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the last episode, I billed this as an anti-disaster. And there's something to that. This man's life... <laughs> This man's life was a series of, like, oh, come on, lucky successes against all reason. But he himself was kind of a disaster as well. He sounds like the worst person. He sounds like somebody that it's it's very, very hard to like. And so I'm just, I'm kind of on the side of I don't like the guy. Mm -hmm. But he's so interesting. It's one of those things where there are certain people in history <laughs> that just defy description and and he is one of them he is a he is a classic american weirdo that's who he is <laughs> so our tale starts in the town of malden massachusetts outside of boston he was born in 1748 probably in january it's a little hard to to track down some of the very specific details of this guy because you know, the record keeping just wasn't that good. I mean, are we sure he was born and not, like, found somewhere? <laughs> okay, so basically he was born to a farming family, and they were all just dirt broke. He secured himself an apprenticeship with a Boston leather maker. Mm. Because that was where the money was. Oh, yeah. It was considered a lower class, you know, kind of profession, but the money was really good because Boston had monopolized this, like, specific style of leather that was hugely in fashion. Mm -hmm. He apprentices there at 16. He finishes up his apprenticeship at 21. He never really went to school, and that's important for, for his later business ventures. <laughs> he decides to go into business for himself once he's done being an apprentice, and his business is fine, but then this whole revolution thing breaks oh, out. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So while the revolution is rising up again, you know, in Boston, mm -hmm. he meets this, uh, this very nice woman named Elizabeth Frothingham. That's a great name. It is a wonderful name. She deserves to be like a heroine of some story. And instead she is this dude's wife Aww. because she had just been widowed. And one of the things about being widowed at that time was that you had no rights of possession, so she needed to marry somebody, like, right away to make sure she hung on to her money and property. And she got Lord Timothy. And she got Tim Dexter. Oh, boy. Good old Timmy. Um, and so they married, and he was pretty upfront that, like, from the start, he was in it for the cash. Oh! Uh, <laughs> that's in such bad taste. Elizabeth, you deserve better. She did deserve better, 
But, you know, she did choose to marry him instead of some other She dude, was going to be homeless. So... I don't think that's really a choice. Yeah, but she could have married some other leather maker. She didn't have to marry the craziest one who knocked on her door first. <laughs> Maybe he was the best looking. I, I... I don't think so. I've seen etchings <laughs> of the man. He's not attractive. All right, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so he all of a sudden is shot into high society Woo-hoo. because she's rich. And because, you know, she's rich, she's in Boston. There's a whole lot of instant reputation right then. Cachet. He gets some cachet. He does, uh, except that everybody hates him. Oh, because, yeah, because he's terrible. Because he sucks. Right, okay. He sucks. I mean, basically, everybody is like, oh, this dude is terrible, uh, including none less than John Hancock, the John Hancock, mm. who was then the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, was like, yeah, I have no respect for this dude. And so his first scheme, Timothy Dexter's first scheme is he says, well, how do I get people to respect me? And that basically becomes the story of his entire life. He just wants people to respect mm. him. He doesn't want to earn it, mind you. No, that's hard work. <laughs> he just he just wants it. So he figures the quickest way to do that is to run for an elected office. Yes! Yes! Because he had dropped out of school at the age of around eight years old, mm-hmm. he can't qualify because he can't he can't write the document that says I am hereby running for this office. Well, surely there's something he could do in Malden. Well, so what he does is he starts writing to the governing body of Malden, mm-hmm. and he writes them so many letters that they just get sick of him. And did you run into what post they created for I him? I did, and then I forgot it right away because it was too magnificent to be real. It's, it's amazing. He becomes the informer of yes <laughs> now there's a slight caveat to that no. all right because the post of informer of deer is actually an important post right. back in colonial uh New yeah England you gotta talk to the deer and make sure they know what's going on yes you have to keep them informed mm-hmm. no it's slightly different uh you have to your job as the informer of deer is you're supposed to keep track of the deer populations because food is so scarce that deer are a major food source uh. For people in this region. Here's the thing. There had been no deer sighted in Malden for at least 20 years at that point. Oh, boy. So so they just created a post to shut him up. And it worked. He stopped running for other offices. And thank goodness, because how, how much worse would it have been if this dude had, like, run for something he was amazingly unqualified for, that it actually had, like, repercussions for other human beings? Yeah, I don't think you would, would want him been... in any kind of social services oh position or... <laughs> Anything, anything. <laughs> Registering anything. <laughs> anything where he had any power over another human being. Just no, 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 no. Even the deer. He doesn't even have power over even the, the deer. deer. They're well, invisible. He does not. He, he's just there to count them. And it's a very easy job because <laughs> the zero. count is usually zero. <laughs> I think this was an excellent solution. Good job, Malden Select. I think it was. Good job, Malden Selectman. Exactly. This is what you do. So a note to all other New England towns that are dealing with the town crazy. Just make them informer of deer, okay? They have to submit paperwork once a year that says how many deer they've spotted, and you're golden, you're queen. All right, so the next thing he does is he really, really likes this whole concept of the United States of America, all right? The revolution The revolution is going, it's going strong right now. There's, you know, there's not a lot he can do directly to support. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to pick up a gun and go No, he's fight. busy with the deer. He's busy yeah. with the deer, exactly. So what he's going to do instead is he's going to support the continental currency. <laughs> Love that sweet, sweet cash money. <laughs> this, is, this is actually, like, one of the... Uh, this is a kind of incredible story here. So this is the first time that his unbelievable luck sort of rears its head. The Continental Congress issued America's first form of paper currency, which was called the Continental Dollar, and it ranged in value from a sixth of a dollar up to $80 notes, Mm. okay? And they usually went in $5 increments. Now, the problem with this is that Congress issued somewhere around $242 million worth of Oh, yeah, it doesn't work when you don't actually have anything backing it up, right? Exactly. It's, It's basically fiat money. Yeah. And the Continental Congress can't force monetary policy on the colonies. Mm -hmm. So the colonies are also issuing their own notes. You can get a Massachusetts bank note. You could get a Virginia bank note. Collect them all. The other thing is that the British were pretty good about undermining local governments. Mm -hmm. They'd had a lot of practice (laughs) at this point. 
Uh, and so one of the first things they did was they, they started this massive counterfeiting operation. Oh. So what winds up happening is, despite the fact that they issued so much of the bills, vendors don't accept yeah. it. Yeah. Like, at all. And the bills depreciate in value to next to nothing. And it's where the phrase, not worth a continental, comes from. Yeah. Because the continental dollar was not worth anything. And here's, here's the real trick about the continental dollar. It was how the soldiers who fought in the war were paid. Oh, that is low. Here, have some play money. Yep. Thanks so much for risking exactly. your life. <laughs> exactly. So Alexander Hamilton does not like yeah, that. Yeah, he wouldn't. And James Madison does not like that. And they both don't like it for different reasons. James Madison doesn't like it because he sees it as speculators could grab a bunch of this and undermine our entire currency. Mm -hmm. And Alexander Hamilton doesn't like it because he's like, yeah, these guys fought in a war and they deserve to get paid in real I money. I mean, they both have a point. So what happens is in the 1790s, when the Constitution gets ratified, the Continentals are allowed to be traded in for treasury bonds at 1% of face value. Hmm. Okay, so if you bought a dollar, it's worth a penny, right? Okay. So who has a huge pile of Continental dollars? Timothy Dexter bought somewhere between 20 and 40 million dollars holy goodness it. and he did that mostly by using his wife's money mm -hmm. uh, some of it with money he had owned himself so he paid money for the money that wasn't worth anything exactly in order to support the currency okay. he purchased currency mm -hmm. for fractions on the dollar Great. okay depending on how you look at it he was either trying to support the currency of the new government or he was speculating that either the currency would have value at some point or um he was going to lose all his money hmm. so he spent a ton of money on this and even at one percent of the face value when he had bought it for you know fractions of pennies on the dollar he made a killing he made an absolute killing. oh no so at this point he was probably a millionaire at least. We don't know how much money he had, but it was enough to do what comes next. Basically. And this was real money, not This was real continental money. United States currency, not continental uh, uh. dollars. Right. So exactly the thing James Madison was worried about, people speculating on the money. He did that <laughs> and he got super rich off it. He had also purchased a large amount of British pounds and French francs. Mm when their value had been depressed by the war and was able to sell those off as well and make a ton of money that nice. way. So now he's super rich, like super rich, but the people still don't like yeah. him. He's really obnoxious. From all the, all the information we can gather about him is that he's just a dude who just won't... He won't shut up, and he, he has this massive inability to be correct about oh, anything. Oh, that's the and worst. And if he's wrong about something... He just keeps insisting he's right until you give up. He is the worst. That is a terrible collection of personality traits. I don't like it at all. And owing to those personality traits, he concludes that the reason he's not getting ahead is because Bostonians. The problem is with them, not with I me. I mean, yep. can we sidebar for a minute? Yeah, please sidebar for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I have lived in and among Bostonians. Yeah. And uh, the problem is me. It's not them. Yeah. They're... They're angry people. <laughs> you have to be to survive in this climate. Agreed. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. If you can't, if, if you have the entirety of society telling you that you're the problem, you are actually the problem. At that point. I think it's worth taking a moment and doing some self-reflection, Timothy. Well, he seemed to lack that ability uh, mm. and, and never really got called on it. So, so basically Bummer. what happens is he leaves Boston concludes that the problem is with Boston and not with him, and he leaves for Newburyport. <laughs> Which is so exotic and different. <laughs> well, here's the thing about Newburyport. Newburyport... A full 20 miles away. <laughs> but Newburyport is coastal, mm -hmm. and it's a merchant town, okay? Mm -hmm. So, here's what he does. He buys a fleet of shipping vessels. Yes. And he buys this it might be America's first McMansion, <laughs> basically. So I have seen pictures of this. It is ugly, uh, but it is you can see what the architects were going for. 
It's unique. Once you've seen it, you will not forget that you've seen it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it is still standing today. It is it, The address is 201 High Street in Newburyport, Mass. You can find it on Google Maps. Field trip. It is still standing today. It has a bunch of features that are meant to evoke grander buildings. Oh, boy. I feel like that's where architects really oh run into God. trouble. Yes, exactly. It's got these, so it's got these massive columns in the front mm-hmm. that are supposed to be sort of Greco architecture, and instead they look they look sort of like toothpicks trying to hold up a hamburger because the the roofing over them overhangs them so much that they look very thin. It has a cupola on top of it. Yes, a nice you know a nice pretty cupola that he never glassed in. So, ah, the famous open air cupola. The famous open air cupola. We call it a roof gazebo. It's a wonderful feature. <laughs> so what winds up happening to that is, of course, the, the wood rot gets into it and the thing nearly falls down. So instead of repairing it and putting glass in, he just bricks it up. Yeah, I mean, so there's a cupola on top of it that's just bricked up. Uh, it is it is it is a bizarre little uh, little mansion there. If you look at the house, I think you can understand Timothy Dexter a little better. It's an idea house. Sure. It's like he had some ideas yes. and said, "Build me this," and oh, they yeah. built him that, and he was probably perfectly happy with it. And we haven't even gotten into the giant wooden statues yet. Okay, so when you look at a picture <laughs> of this, like from an engraving, you think, yeah. "How nice the artist has put people." all over the roofline of this building. No. That is not no, no. <laughs> That is not no. accurate. No, those are all statues of great American heroes, such as George standing, Washington. Orating, yes. lying down, standing up, sitting. And they are bizarre. There are some native chiefs, some generals, a couple Greek philosophers, a couple Roman statesmen, the goddess of fame and liberty, which of I course. believe he created. Come on. That's Lady Timothea. Yeah, right right there. Excuse me. Of course. How could we forget Lady Timothea? Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams. William Pitt. William Pitt is up there. And and this is the thing. They're all carved out of wood. Yeah. And he... <laughs> like the Continental Dollar, they did not last. No. And the final statue was that of himself. But taller. And that is, But taller, yep. yes. Uh, with that inscription that we heard at the top of the show, the I am the first in the east, the first in the west inscription. Yep. Keep in mind, this man had, it does not look like he had ever read a book in his life. I mean. And holy cow, these statues, and remember, we're talking in the 1790s, cost $2,000 each. Mm. He paid twice as much for the statues as he'd paid for the entire estate. Oh, God. So he has a biographer that comes along in the mid-1800s, a guy named Samuel Knapp, mm-hmm. who is an absolute goldmine for, for just, wait, what stories? <laughs> and basically what he was trying to do was he was essentially trying to do sort of an Americana theme park. He wanted people to come there to see the statues and this wonderful building. The problem was is that it was such... I think the nicest thing to call it is an aesthetic embarrassment. It just hurts to look at it. It It really does. Even in an engraving, when they have like the perfect lighting, the perfect weather, you look at it and you just kind of recoil a little bit in your soul. It's real bad. Uh, So I'm interested to see it in real life. (laughs) Well, in real life, it is much different. It's been repainted, for one thing. (laughs) And it's smaller because certain sections of it caught on fire Mm -hmm. and they removed it. The way they caught on fire was incredible. It was in 1988. House painters, for some reason, were using blowtorches to burn off the paint under the eaves. Oh, oh, honey, on a 200-year-old oh, yeah. house? Yeah. Uh... So it was it was restored mm-hmm. to look as it did. But yeah, that was woof. And so this thing was such an eyesore that basically his wife decides she's going to live elsewhere. <laughs> now, was it the house that convinced her? I think the house may have been an excuse. <laughs> oh, Timothy, you know I love you so much. But, golly. It's the house, it's darling. The house. I'm not fancy enough. So she literally gets another apartment, like, in Newburyport. <laughs> oh. And then, and this is where we start getting into all the gross stuff. Um, so he was a partier. Tim, yeah. Timothy Dexter becomes a partier, and there are long nights of 
drunken Partying. women coming over and it's gross. Wait, wait, wait. There was also gambling. Oh, yes. Gambling and his son moves in with him and just makes everything worse. Uh, hmm. It's 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 real bad. Then we get into his his mercantile adventures. OK. And this is. Yeah, where, let's cheer up this story. This a is where bit. you kind of cheer for him a little bit. <laughs> so his his neighbors and peers in Newburyport can't stand him and they conspire to utterly ruin him and they figure the best way to do that they tell him about the absolute best ways to make money each time with the intent to get him to go bankrupt and now do they know that he is the world's most successful currency speculator no. at this time they also don't know how okay. stupid lucky he is um it is it is unfair <laughs> Okay, so basically what winds up happening, the first thing is bed warming pans. So they're these wide brass pans, and what you're supposed to do with them, they've got a little lid on them, and at night you go down to your stove and you take the warm coals out and you put them into this pan, and then you slide that pan under your bedding, and it keeps you warm at night, mm. okay? It so also, cozy. you know, burns down houses sometimes, but then, then yeah, whatever. So... Well, it doesn't mean to. That's not part of the design, Greg. So they have these very long handles and they're good at holding a large amount of things. Okay. And that becomes important. Mm -hmm. Where these uh, neighbors who try to ruin him tell them to sell them is down in the West Indies. Oh. Now, you may not be aware of this, (laughs) but the West Indies is fairly warm most of the time. I suddenly realized (laughs) why we teach little kids geography. Geography. (laughs) <laughs> so Dexter buys around 42,000 of these pans. That's impressive. Drops them into his nine ships and sends them off to the West Indies. And everybody else is like, oh my God, he is totally going to be destroyed in this. Yeah, except that when they show up, they turn out to be absolutely perfect to be used as molasses ladles. I mean. And since the number one export is sugar and molasses on those awful, awful enslaved people plantations down there. So he makes a ton of money. The ships come back and he thinks to himself, well, what do I do with this next one? So the next one, he uh, he gathers up all the cats he can Oh, find. this is my favorite part of the story. Because the cats don't get hurt. The cats are living, they're feral cats, they're living in Boston. They're all these feral cats that are just sort of living in the countryside and he puts out a bounty on them but he requires that they be brought alive, okay? So overnight, this industry breaks out of people bringing these cats to Tim Dexter. And he throws them on a ship. Wait, where does he keep them until he's ready to ship? Does it, does he just like fill up his mansion with cats? I have no idea. It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Does he put them in the cupola? uh, He must. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's why why it, uh, all the all the stuff. I mean, you can make a bunch of herding cat jokes here, but I really want to know what he did with them once they got brought I in. I have no idea, mm. actually. the The paperwork is not there. The paperwork is not there on the cats, and and this is a huge amount. Like, it's a couple thousand cats. All right, and they go on the shipping vessels, and they go down to the end. Okay, it's a couple thousand when they leave. It's more when they get there. Oh, that's right? true. That's true. Because they're not neutered. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. These are just street cats and street cats do what street cats do. They have kittens. And so they go down to the Indies again. And (laughs) because of the sugar plantations, Mm -hmm. rats were a gigantic problem. And so he sells all these cats off as rat catchers. So the same people using using brass bed warmers to scoop their molasses are now buying Cats. cats from him american cats which we all know are tougher than other cats well i mean they're certainly not used to the weather in jamaica but they're probably happier down there dude they're on vacation it's jamaica it's they've hay. got all their friends it's with them like yeah it, they've it, got it's tons the of rats to eat exactly i love this i think the cats are the real winners i think the in cats are the heroes in this story exactly <laughs> the cats win uh they get everything they want they get plenty of food and and timothy dexter gets plenty of money for them what a beautiful story. So this is the end, right? Nope. Nope. It gets, uh... it gets better and worse. Um, <laughs> so the worst one comes to when he, he gets a bunch of Bibles. So a Bible printing place goes out of business and Timothy Dexter swoops in and buys their entire stock of around 19,000 Bibles. 
Mm-hmm. And he says to himself, well, the Indies have been super profitable. I'm going to send the Bibles down to the Indies. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Christianity, not super big down there at this time. That's kind of a hard sell, yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a hard sell. So what he does is he makes sure to include a note in each and every Bible that says, you're going to hell if you don't buy this book. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't like the salesmanship tactic. Unsurprisingly, they sell super well. <laughs> Plus, uh, a group of Christian missionaries had, like, literally days before his ships arrive, had also arrived, and their Bibles had been ruined in the voyage over. So all now of they a sudden, they've ones. got all these new Bibles. Exactly. So again, This guy's timing is amazing. It's unbelievable. And it's about to get better, because next come the mittens. So he buys up a huge stock of heavy woolen mittens and again, sends them down to the Caribbean. And as I'm sure we all can imagine. <laughs> he still doesn't understand the climate there. I don't think he cares. All okay. he, all, this is his entire frame of reference. I send random thing down there. I get back ships full of money. Like seriously, that's his entire frame of reference right now. Okay. So he sends woolen thick mittens down to the Caribbean. And here's what winds up happening. A Portuguese trading ship had arrived the day before and unloaded all their goods. And they were sitting in port panicking because they had nothing to bring with them to sell on their next leg of the trip. Which, of course, at that point means, you know, if you're if you're sailing with an empty ship, you're losing money, really. Mm. And all of a sudden, this gigantic pile of um, American-made woolen mittens shows up, which is just perfect for these Portuguese who are about to go to Norway. Hey! What? <laughs> just what? I don't understand this. His neighbors must be so mad at this point. <laughs> His neighbors are furious with him, and so they hatch on their best scheme yet. There is a very famous saying called selling coal to Newcastle. Because selling coal to Newcastle means you are doing the dumbest possible thing. Newcastle in Britain, for those of us not in the know, is a gigantic coal mining community. It is huge. All the coal comes from there. All of it. Nice. And so Timothy Dexter loads up his ships with coal. And the people who are giving him this bad advice are like, well, you got to sell it in Newcastle. They right. love coal over there. Because uh, they, they, they're probably running out at this point. <laughs> they need more. Shipping coal to Newcastle is is fruitless because any foreign shipment that comes in, like, they don't need it. It's There's so much coal there that coal usually, when, when somebody was foolish enough to import it, it went for, you know, pennies for the ton. Mm. Like, it was, it was worthless. His ship arrives the week after... The Newcastle coal miners strike. Mm. They had stopped mining coal. They were on strike. And so the coal gets sold at well above market prices. Oh, boy. And so those are the major trading ventures of Timothy Dexter, where he just gets lucky time and time again. The final one is on a trip to Boston. He purchases an absolutely ridiculous quantity of whalebone okay <laughs> i mean it's just lying around it's just laying around nobody's got a use for <laughs> probably it probably super cheap for a couple it's very cheap mm-hmm. he buys 340 tons of it basically accidentally monopolizing the whalebone market in boston oh whales the hate thing that is, whale, whalebone is useless like oh. it was used for some people in like a very few things some people would turn it into like knitting needles greg that it was holds it. up the whole whale once the bone is out of the whale it's fairly useless thank you <laughs> sorry <laughs> i apologize go ahead here's the thing that winds up happening Whalebone suddenly becomes so much in demand that I found one reference uh, to this event referring to the material basically as the plastic of the 1800s. Because whalebone is suddenly in everything. It's in corsets, it's in collars, it's in buggy whips, toys, early typewriters, guns, everything. Like, it 
suddenly becomes one of the most important manufacturing items, and uh, he's got all of it in Boston and is able to charge whatever he wants for it and makes yet another fortune. So Timothy Dexter, at this point, decides that he is going to uh, refer to himself as Lord Timothy Dexter. Yeah, he's at that point, isn't he? He's super rich. He is so rich. He's super out of touch. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, can I can I share one tiny little out of touch uh, anecdote? Here? Oh, oh, one. <laughs> oh, you just, have one. Just the one, I promise. <laughs> Please. Because th- this one's my favorite. Um, <clears throat> so those ugly wooden statues that he'd commissioned of people, mm-hmm. uh, underneath the person were, was where an inscription about the person went, mm-hmm. right? So under his, he had that I'm the first in the East, first in the West thing. Under Thomas Jefferson, the painter wrote Declaration of Independence. And Timothy Dexter told him, no, you need to write the Constitution under that. Oh, Yes. Thomas Jefferson, the famous like, writer of the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. This is why we teach history to children in school. Oh, God. This would have and been is, like the painter, 15 years ago. Yeah, it was not that long. Jefferson was still alive. Ah. You know? Like he could have just called him up and asked. Oh, you got to anyway. fact check. You have to fact check, Timothy. So the painter is like, no, no, no. It's Declaration of Independence. Timothy Dexter goes in his house, grabs his rifle, and fires a shot at the dude. And then simply says, Constitution. And the painter writes Constitution under it. There you go. This is why his neighbors don't like him. This is why his neighbors don't like him. This is why nobody likes him. <laughs> uh, he also hired his own poet laureate, who was oh, a, a, local, yeah, obviously. a local halibut seller. <laughs> I mean, the cod sellers are just so trashy. <laughs> the real uh, poetry is in the halibut. <laughs> he... he uh, he had learned that uh, the great Italian poets were given crowns of mistletoe. Mm. So Dexter gave this dude a crown of parsley because he had that in his garden at the time. I feel like we're verging into the kind of satire that you can't even laugh at right? anymore because it's too outrageous. Yeah. You're like, oh, you got to scale it back if you want the laughs. Come on. <laughs> the parsley crown is just the parsley crown really is sad. Great. Yeah. In that awful, awful way. <laughs> And this is where we get into the the second half of our story, where we, we, we really start to actively dislike this guy. This is the left turn. This is the, this is the oh, yikes moment. So it was pretty okay, clear. So, wait, yeah, at this point, ahead. he's a billionaire, right? At least, yeah. Everybody hates him. Yep. And uh, is he retired or is he still, like, trading? So he's not actively trading but he's doing this thing that's actually pretty amazing right now his his mercantile ventures are basically the following mm-hmm. he looks for something it's weird basically in modern terms we'd call this looking for market weaknesses because what he's doing is he would send you know his 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 purchasers to a city and if the city only had a small amount of something anything it could be postcards it could be you know, chocolate biscuits. It does not matter what it was. As long as there wasn't a ton of it there, mm-hmm. he would buy all of it and then mark it up 100% and sell it back. That's so mean. God. Is, well, it's basically market cornering. But the yeah, thing but is, it's, it just seems so rude. <laughs> but because he'd purchased all of them, uh, people started to panic. Like, it would get to the point where... It would get to the point... Seriously, it would get to the point where people... um. Basically, if, if anything was scarce in the marketplace, he would just buy up all of it and then double the price. So any merchant that was dealing with him was like, wait a minute, why are you buying postcards? <laughs> why are you buying blankets? Hold on. <laughs> Even though there's no reason for those prices to like go flying up, they always would. You know, I, do, you I would... think, do you think he was smart? Like, do you think he was a very smart person I to think... do this? Or do you think he was just insanely lucky? I think that a huge part of his major success was luck. Mm-hmm. Like, there are things you can't plan for. Deals with Satan, but uh, yeah, sure, sure luck. Um, <laughs> but I think that the smaller things were actually probably pretty smart market moves just because he'd figured out that little weakness in capitalism, which mm-hmm. is if you can control the entire supply, you can charge whatever you want. If he goes into Boston and he doesn't do the major things like he doesn't he doesn't buy all the corn he doesn't buy all the molasses mm-hmm. he'll buy all of like the whalebone <laughs> that nobody's using 
Again, the whales were using it? Yes, but not at that point. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. And then then all of a sudden, he'd turn around and start selling it for huge amounts. Mm -hmm. Like, this is is what he did. He just... He's a speculator. I think that the latter part of his of his mercantile career was being a very good speculator. Okay. And and the thing the luck part of that was that he just didn't he never picked something that really failed. I mean, if you can sell coals to Newcastle, you Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's, like there's that's, just Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? You know, you're not going to fail. You just give up at that point. If you're just trying to ruin the dude, you just kind of give up at a that A billion point. dollars in an ugly house is a billion dollars in an ugly house. So here is where our story takes its takes its left turn. Ugh. All right. Take us through it. He really, 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 really doesn't like the fact that he's still basically an outcast in polite society. He is somebody that people have no respect for, <laughs> even though he is calling himself Lord now. Um, oh, that for some didn't reason, do the that trick. just doesn't do it. No, I know. <laughs> it's bizarre. And we know that from his own writings that he really, he basically ignored his kids and didn't like his wife. Mm-hmm. In fact, he would generally tell people that his wife was dead and that the person that they saw before them was her ghost come to haunt him. That is the worst part of the story for me. I just, yeah, I want to... <sighs> It's real bad. It's really bad. First of all, I want to convince Elizabeth that this is not a normal or healthy relationship. And second (laughs) of all, I just want to say, (laughs) please, Timothy, that is just not what people do. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he's listening at this point. Just leave her in her apartment. Leave her alone. Oh, no. Yeah. Give her some mittens. Give her a warming pan. She's going to be 100% better off without you. They were really only seeing each other at this point at social functions. Oh. Um, well. And when and when she would drop by. Like, because <laughs> As a she, ghost. for whatever reason, she'd still she'd still drop by and visit him. Mm. And like, okay, whatever. Alright. Probably just to get his stories. I bet he had a ton of amazing stories even though it was terrible. Even though he sucked. Mm. So he begins to fake his own death. There's just no getting around that. It's such an nope. ugly thing to do yep. to your community if if you're doing it with the intention of seeing how many people really like you. And that's exactly why he did it. He had a couple of people in his like inner circle that he could trust and was like, I'm, I want to know how the public really feels about me, so I am going to fake my own death. It only works in novels, Timothy. And, and even then, it doesn't work. Even then. Do just don't do it. <laughs> So the first thing he does is he wants to build a tomb fit for a lord. Oh, boy. So he takes the entire basement of this place and turns it into a tomb, like with marble carvings and everything. This is an in-house mausoleum? This is in his his house's basement. So the next thing he does is he gets the finest cabinet maker in Massachusetts— and he purchases the best mahogany available mm. so this guy can craft him a coffin, okay? Oh, boy. Now, this coffin, Timothy Dexter liked it so much that he took to sleeping in it. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. it's probably the most beautifully carved piece of furniture in the house, maybe? I, well, it, it was apparently incredibly comfortable. I'm sure it was expensive. He wants to get his bunnies worth <laughs> Oh, it was very, very expensive. Can you imagine him laying in there every night going, God, what a great choice this was. Yes. See, that's the thing. I can. Why I can don't people imagine that. like me as he's lying in his coffin? People should really like me, says the billionaire lying in his coffin. So he gets the few people he trusts to organize the funeral. So he sends out death notices to the community. Now, I can't really put this in his favor, mm-hmm. but he does at least tell his wife and kids that he's not really dead. He's just doing this to see how many people show up. Okay. Oh, that makes it better. But as part of letting them in on it, he demands that they act utterly distraught at this funeral, right? Like he wants them to act as though the world is ended. Okay. So that seems like it would be a big ask because he is not a very nice person. (laughs) How did they feel about that? Uh, Well, his kids went along with it. Oh, good. 
His kids went along with it. And we will see what happened with his wife in just a moment. <laughs> so, so on the day of the funeral, about 3,000 people show up. And he's, I mean, he's laid out the bar. It's got exotic liquor, best wines, fancy cheeses imported from France. Everything is perfect for this funeral. Everybody's upset. His son immediately gets drunk, and which allows him to weep without much effort. Mm. His daughter's not drinking, but she is doing a good job of having, you know, her head in her hands and oh, woe is me. Mm-hmm. And... Timothy Dexter is watching all of this from under the floorboards, okay? In his coffin. No, not in his coffin, although that would have been nice. <laughs> from his mausoleum, from his in-house mausoleum. So he, and then he sees his wife. <laughs> his wife is not crying. His wife is, in fact, smiling. Yeah, I'm with her. Because, well, and she's in conversation with people, mm-hmm. right? Like, she's not going to be, you know, wailing and moaning while she's talking with, you know, their neighbors. Timothy Dexter does not take this well. She goes back to the kitchen. He basically ambushes her in the kitchen and beats her with his cane. Mm. Badly. Really badly. Like, to the point where doctors needed to be called. And the other guests hear the commotion. And Dexter strolls out of the kitchen with, you know, just a a cat-eating-the-canary grin. And uh, then, you know, lets everybody know, ha, tricked you drinks for everyone and the party just continues Mm. yeah Uh, except for his wife who you know had to go see a doctor he doesn't get arrested for that does he Uh, he does not he does not in fact the only brush with the law that he had was early on this is a nice little side sidebar but Mm -hmm. it's worth going into earlier on shortly after they had moved to newburyport he got in an argument with somebody in the street and the only local account I could find of this was basically that uh, Timothy was in the wrong, but refused to admit it. Shocker. <laughs> he rushes to his house, grabs a pistol, and fires three or four times at this guy, missing from, like, point-blank range every single time, mm. and lands himself in the Ipswich jail for the night. Okay. So, there you go. Also, there is a lot of uh, evidence from his writings and from the writings of people who knew him that basically his son was a complete alcoholic. People described him as permanently in mourning mm-hmm. and his daughter as driven to madness. Hmm. So basically, he, he not only ruined the life of his wife, but his kids as well. Nice. So finally, he decides that if he's going to achieve the immortality that he craves, he's going to need to do the thing that all great men do. Get a poet laureate. Well, he's already got the Poet Laureate. Get two. Publish a memoir. Yes! I knew we would get there. And here we come to... Possibly the greatest book ever written. Though, yeah, sure. From a, from, Certainly from the from least people, punctuated. From, per, from people who believe that Plan 9 from Outer Space is the greatest film ever made, but at least that was made with love. This book is written with hate. It is... It goes well past bizarre. It goes about seven exits past insane. Winds up somewhere in the neighborhood of criminal. Okay. It is horrific. It is also, for people who think that reading Ulysses is bad, struggle through this first. So this book is called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones or Plain Truth in a Homespun Dress. So, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. So, we break down that title slightly. Uh, Basically, Knowing Ones was a a common euphemism at the time that just meant people who uh, were well-read and educated, okay? They would be referred to as Knowing Ones. Mm -hmm. A pickle, again, sort of like our our current phrase of, well, that's a real pickle, or I'm in a pickle, sort of meant, you know, a puzzle or a riddle. So, basically, what he was saying was, all you well-educated people, here is my middle finger, examine it for a while. It contains around 9,000 words, mm-hmm. around 34,000 letters, most of which are capitalized at random. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and no punctuation marks at all. I'm getting that little headache None. you get right between your eyes. <laughs> that one that's like right over your, your temple where your whole side of your head just throbs. Yeah. <laughs> So, 
it is this stream of consciousness that is about 40% how much uh, of a genius he is Mm -hmm. and about 60% how much he hates his wife and politicians. Wait, his wife, he's putting them in the same group? Oh yeah, yeah, he, he, he hates them. Okay. Uh, and the clergy, too. He doesn't leave the clergy out of it. <sighs> now, this book, for those of you who are who are brave of heart and strong of stomach, is available on Google Reads. Like, you can just go out and get this, or you can purchase a copy because it's still in print. That's right. This dude who wanted immortality through a terrible mansion and stupid statues gets it through this book. <laughs> that seems wrong. It's so wrong. It had eight printings in his lifetime. Eight. Okay. Eight. <laughs> and he wrote the damn thing at 50 years old and died at 60. That is, to anyone who has ever tried to write a book, that is an insult. No, I think what you're missing here is that he did not know how to read and he still wrote a book. That's actually, okay, so if you want to take the inspirational thing of it, there you go. It's, you know. So, no less than Oliver Wendell Holmes. Oh, God. Did a uh, did a review of it, and, oh. and the Holmes quote is amazing. This is in 1890, so this is you know 80 years or so down the road. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> the quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes: "Quote, I'm afraid that Mr. Whitman and Mr. Emerson must yield the claim of declaring American literary independence mm. to Lord Timothy Dexter, who not only taught his countrymen that they do not need to go to Harold's College for their titles of nobility." but also that they were at perfect liberty to dispel just as they liked and to write without troubling themselves about punctuation of any kind. Oh, shade! <laughs> oh, Ollie Holmes took him down. That oh, great. that's so cranky. Oh, it's so well I love it. I oh, love it's, it. Well done. it's well done. So speaking of cranky, uh, the first printing of this book, mm-hmm. he realized that the noblemen in England don't sell their books, but they give them out as gifts to increase readership. Okay, so he just is giving out his book to everybody he meets. He's literally handing out copies to people he just walks by like, hi, how are you? Here's a book. And at great personal cost to himself, of course, but that doesn't matter. Oh, he's a billionaire. Yeah. So the demand is so high that a second edition is commissioned. All right. Now, despite all evidence to the contrary, he had an editor. (laughs) (laughs) And the editor says, Lord Dexter, sir, if you please, uh... Could we maybe try putting some punctuation marks in this one? And so Timothy Dexter responds in the most Timothy Dexter way. And this, again, almost swings me back to liking the guy, but I just don't. Mm -hmm. But this moment here is beautiful. He responds by putting a page in the back of the book that is nothing but punctuation marks. Mm. And and, And the instruction is, pepper and salt them as you please. A poor printer. <laughs> was the printer the same guy who was trying to paint the correct inscription on the Thomas Jefferson statue? Uh, no, he was not. But boy, would that have been on brand. As I said, his book gets uh, gets a huge amount of printings. And then finally, he dies for real. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. 100%. So 18, 1806. In 1806 in October, mm-hmm. he was not doing well on his deathbed and in a last act he actually divides up his estate equally between his children and his wife and the friends that hadn't abandoned him and did it in a fairly fair way basically he i think in one big swing he was trying to get a bunch of karma oh yeah because you know why (laughs) he was gonna have to pay some debts as soon as he died (laughs) He wants to have one thing to point to. No, no, I was nice to my wife. See? Right? I left her all those statues. <laughs> oh, no, there's a story about the statues, too, as well. The statues were supposed to be left intact at the property. Mm-hmm. But about nine years after he died, there was a strong windstorm, and they were all knocked off their pedestals, and some were broken, and, and whatever. It just wasn't worth the effort to get them back up there. Mm-hmm. And so they were sold at auction. Now, keep in mind, he had commissioned these at about $2,000 each. They fetched at auction between 50 cents and $5 a piece. I hope the sculptor got paid. I, I, I think the sculptor demanded payment up front. I think he's the real hero of this story. I don't know. I think it's between him and the cats. Are any of them surviving? Do you know? The statues, yeah. One one survives. Uh, the statue of William Pitt. 
it still exists mm -hmm. and it is on display at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Oh, cool. Yep. So you can see it. After his wife died, the house was turned into a resort, mm -hmm. which lasted until 1852. The home now has been turned into apartments slash condos and is being rented out to folks. I think it might be haunted. Uh, I certainly wouldn't go down to the basement. Although, in the <laughs> final act, to try to shut this dude up, the Newburyport Board of Health rejected his deathbed request to be buried in his tomb. You cannot be buried in the basement. Come on! It was on the grounds that it was not sanitary. Yeah, no kidding! <laughs> and so he was laid to rest... He's in got groceries down there, probably. He's got his root <laughs> cellar. He's got his canned goods. You want a dead body down there with that? Jeez. I think it was in, like, you know, a, a small mausoleum or something, but yeah. And he does gross. have that fancy coffin, but again, do you want your cans of beans and your pickles no. right next to the Separated dude? from Timothy Dexter by a layer of mahogany. No, I'm good. And you know that if he was still in the house, he would haunt it. No, he'd just bang around going, why aren't you worshipping me as a genius? <laughs> I had a real funeral this time and you guys don't even care. <laughs> and my wife was still smiling. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So the final footnote here is that his wife passed away about three years later. Oh, I hope those were a good three years for I, her. I, God, I hope they were good years for her. There isn't much mention of his son and daughter, and that's probably for the best. Because mm. um, they seemed like they were kind of kneecapped at birth, and things just got worse for him from there. Yeah, they got nature and nurture, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so that is the crazy disaster of a life of Timothy Dexter. You know, when we started researching this, I wasn't sure if a person could qualify as a disaster, but Timothy Dexter <laughs> is a human tornado. He is a human he, he earthquake. Is. He is a disaster. He's, he's a bad dude. The informer of deer is, uh, is no more. Now, was he the informer of deer throughout his career? Like, as he was sailing away, was he still keeping track of the deer? I that was just a not. stepping stone no, for him. I, okay. I, I Yeah, that was just a governmental stepping stone. I do really love that that was his post after he bugged them for years and years. I want to close on this quote from Samuel Knapp, who, again, wrote the definitive biography of this mm -hmm. guy. <clears throat> quote, there are but few men who are sufficiently attentive to their own thoughts and able to analyze every motive or action. Among these, Timothy Dexter was not <laughs> one. <end quote. laughs> well, you can't say he's wrong. <laughs> no, he's not at all. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography will be available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by email to relative.disaster at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? So next episode, we are going to take a deep dive into the 1911 theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. <gasps> yes. You know I'm a huge art history nerd. Yes. We have Pablo Picasso. We have Guillaume Apollinaire. We have maybe swaps of a counterfeit Mona Lisa. That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.